Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Dr. Jeff Cox, we're starting a new series today. Just a little bit of a, we have a guest speaker today, but so Daniel's like, hey Brad, you have November. He told me this months ago, so I just started praying over, like, Lord, what, what should we do for these four weeks in November? And I tried some, and I went down some roads, and the Lord shut the door, and he kept leading me to this idea of mental health and emotional health and the issue that it's having in our church. So I made my very first phone call. When I knew that's what the Lord was like, hey, this is what we need to do, I made my very first phone call uh, to Dr. Jeff Cox. And then it wasn't long after that, I was like, hey, you just want to come down and kick this thing off for us? So I delegated the first Sunday to him. Let me tell you about Jeff. Uh, Jeff and his wife, Jana, they're originally from the SGF Mo. That's it. That's all we get. Like, we love this city. Right? Uh, they live in Kansas City right now. Jeff works as a pastor at Abundant Life Church. He oversees Abundant Life Counseling Center and the Abundant Life Leadership Institute. Uh, Jeff earned his master's in theology from Calvary Theological Seminary. And then his doctorate in counseling from Midwest Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm extremely pumped to have Dr. Jeff Cox here this morning. Without question, this man's taught me more about the Bible and life than any other person on the planet. I love him. I want to be like him. And if no one else is going to get tons of joy out of this today, I'm going to. But I know you will. You're going to be blessed. Let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Jeff Cox. So, good morning. So, I was in my 40s when I had my panic attack. And I remember it. I was going to get a haircut. It was in Leewood, Kansas. And I sat in the parking lot. Clinically, I knew what was happening. Because I had counseled so many people and engaged so many people who had had panic attacks. I knew cognitively My heart was racing, my breath increasing, breathing rapidly. It feels like you're having a heart attack. I had heard that, and I sat there, and it was horrible. I had known about it, but now I was experiencing it. What surprised me was there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. So growing up in a Christian home with my Awana Timothy Award, if you don't know what that is, 300 verses memorized, my master's in theology, a Christian, and I couldn't stop it. Later I reflected on it and I thought, this is what it's been like for all those people I've spoken with. But then as time went by, I thought more, what if I experienced these all the time? What would it be like if this was a regular occurrence in my life? Something as simple as driving to work or a social anxiety. What if I lived with this possibility every time I went to a family function? Now... I would know I'm not going to die, no one dies from them, 
but it would still feel like it all the time. That's mental illness. When Brad asked me to speak on this, when you get asked to speak on this subject, there's not a lot of jokes you can make. It's not going to be a warm fuzzy. <laughs> so what I'm going to do is go through a lot of information and hopefully kick this off for Daniel and Brad and hopefully give you some things that are encouraging. I want to begin, there is a tension in our society. Um, I'm constantly reminded of it for these reasons. Every time there's a shooting and the debate happens in the political world, then I know they're going to talk about mental illness. I know they're going to do that sometimes out of a sincere offer to help people. I'm not naive. I know a lot of times different groups are trying to control a narrative about a lot of different issues I don't want to talk about this morning. I know it's attention on our society because the counseling center I oversee does 7,000 counseling sessions a year. Okay? I know that our children are killing themselves. I don't think two months go by. I'm not a pastor who likes to exaggerate, so I'm trying to be as accurate. I don't think two months goes by when either a child from our community or somebody knows somebody very close within our community has killed themselves. I know statistically speaking, I was just looking at research the other day, and that the age demographic 10 to 14 years old, in the last 10 years, the suicide rate has tripled. I know that I have support groups for addictions, because of an opioid epidemic with an entire culture that at one time was worrying about whether we smoked pot while all the time we're getting addicted to oxy, fentanyl, and everything else. It's a tension in our society that life expectancy for the first time is going down, which hasn't happened, depending on the statistics, since the 60s or even back to pre-1920. Our mortality rate is increasing as a society. Why? Because we kill ourselves and we're addicted. It's also a tension within our faith community when someone who is a leader or a pastor takes their life or they struggle, and then with social media, everyone knows about it, and then we also get reintroduced to the topic of mental illness again. There's also a tension in our private lives because we struggle. And so, while this might not be as entertaining this morning, I'm thankful for this church. I really am. I'm thankful you have a church that's going to talk about it. And I want to say something that's encouraging, and my goal I'll get to in a second here is to give hope for you who might be struggling in this room, for you who have family members, and for you who want to be an effective witness of the gospel for Jesus Christ with a world that desperately needs us. On a positive note, I will say this. We can be sad about the state of affairs that we look at, or we can realize that we were created at exactly this moment in time to minister to this exact culture with the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. 
So I can be sad I live at this time, which I'm not, or I can be glad that I get to go give hope to people who desperately need it, okay? And so hopefully that helps. My heart is simply this. Um, I don't want to misrepresent with false characterizations. I know what I mean by that. I hear that a lot when people speak on this subject. So the first thing you can do is spend all your time talking about how the church doesn't listen and the church hasn't helped. And if you were to just Google, don't do it right now, give me some more time to catch your attention. If you were just to Google church and mental illness, it will be blog after blog after blog after blog of how the church has failed. Um, at times, the church has, but it's not so much church, and I'll talk like a counselor sometimes, it's specific people within a church that have probably hurt people. This kind of low-hanging fruit, and the reason I would talk about that is so it would be, you know, look at me. Look, I'm not like the church who's bad. I'm here to help you. And you could probably diagnose me as somewhat narcissistic in doing that, okay? But the point is, that doesn't help. What else doesn't help is this. We deal with a lot of people through our counseling center. I think everyone knows a stereotype of somebody who either doesn't go to work, is constantly complaining, is not functioning, and they'll always talk about a mental illness as their excuse. And then we all have that characterization in mind at times. And it's like we realize not everyone's like that. But, you know, I just really don't buy that. And as somebody who oversees a counseling center, yes, I can tell you there are a lot of people that the reason they don't go to work is not because they're bipolar, it's just because they're lazy. That is true. But that's a characterization, too, that doesn't really help the dialogue. So when I talk about what are my objectives this morning would be this. One is to explain the tension and really is to give you hope, okay? So a definition of mental illness. Uh, mental illness, also called mental health disorders, refers to a wide range of mental health conditions, disorders that affect our mood, thinking, and behavior. It's kind of ambiguous. It's nebulous. It's kind of hard to define. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I don't want this to be a psychology class. It's more of a starting point. But... Further classifications would be this. The consequences of which are clinically significant distress. You say, well, everyone gets sad from time to time. Everyone gets anxious from time to time. That is absolutely true. In fact, we were created to be that way. If I never got anxious, I would be dead tomorrow. There's something about me that says, don't walk out into traffic. If you were to come at me with a knife, anxiousness would kick in. Chemicals would be released in my brain. Automatically, it goes to my hands and I'd put up my hands to protect myself. There's somewhat we're supposed to experience these emotions in our life, but this is it gets to the point where it's an impairment where something's not functioning, meaning maybe I don't quite fit in anymore. So what about my panic attack? It wouldn't be technically diagnosed as mental illness. You say, what was I going through? I was going through a divorce. I was going through a divorce while my job was an executive pastor of a church that ran 2,500 in a very conservative fundamentalist world. I was having somewhat of an existential crisis of my entire life falling apart. I, for the first time in my life, who would have never thought about suicide, and I didn't then, I don't want to exaggerate, but was so sad, so upset, so lost, so out of control, I would have intrusive thoughts in my mind if I did go to the doctor and find out I had a terminal disease 
I wouldn't want to do anything about it. It had built up, it had built up, it had built up, and then eventually panic attack, letting me know something's really wrong with me. Now, just the fact I can share that out loud, I wouldn't have been able to back in my 40s when I was going through it, because shame was too high, and I'll talk about that. But basically what this is saying is that the things we're dealing with mentally are of such nature, it's called maladaptive, technically meaning I'm not able to adapt to the environment I'm in. So common mental health categories, anxiety disorders, clinical depression, mood disorders, schizophrenia or psychotic disorders, dementia, although people debate whether that fits in this category, eating disorders. I also see, in addition to that, there's a university up in Kansas City called Calvary University, Calvary Theological Seminary. They have a Master's of Arts in Biblical Counseling. I'm over that department, so we're preparing counselors, and then I have 20 to 25 counselors that work in our counseling center at the church that we oversee, and these are the things that people come in to talk to us about. Specifically, mental health disorders would be bipolar disorder, persistent depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, schizophrenia, and social anxiety disorder. Now I go through all of those, this isn't meant really to be a psychology class, okay? Just as an introduction, those are the things we're talking about. So when they said, come speak on mental illness, you might think, I'm not to the point any of those kick in. But you might know somebody who does. Or you might have symptoms of that that you struggle with. The pain is extreme. I had this quote I love by Charles Spurgeon. It says this, The mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there is a bottomless pit. The flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. We are in pain. Our children are killing themselves. Renee Brown, not a Christian, but a researcher, I really like a lot of her information. She said about our society, I like this, we are addicted, in debt, obese, and medicated. That is the society in which we live. So how does the gospel penetrate that story? So if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 9, a very familiar story. When I used to be a student pastor, I would teach this um, all the time. It's in the gospel of John. The purpose of the gospel of John is that people would believe on Jesus Christ, and he gives all these signs or these miracles. This is a very famous one in the gospel of nine, in John chapter 9, and it's about a blind man who gets healed. So, in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, and it talks about Jesus. And as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, and here's the question, Rabbi, who sinned? And I just want you to let that sink for it, in for a second. They go by, and there's a man commonly known to be blind from birth. And the first question is what? Who sinned? They get more specific, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
dot, dot, dot. I'll finish it at the end. I'll get to it later. Before we jump into the miracle, and by the way, the story wouldn't be in the Bible if Jesus tried to heal him and he failed, right? So you know the end. The guy's going to get to see. Happy ending, right? But what I want you to get out of the story first is this, the judgment. And why we struggle, I think, a lot with talking about mental illness and things like that is I think as human beings we are preconditioned, especially from a religious background, to ask this question. It's a simple question. I want to find out who's to what. Blame. Whose fault is this? I won't be able to fix this unless I know the cause. So they're walking along and they look at Jesus and they say, okay, this is something bad that's happened. He can't see. What an impairment. And we want a simple question, whose fault is it? I think we're built to do that. And I like Jesus' answer. He just says, no. And don't you love that? I love that in the Bible. When people ask Jesus questions and, you know, we like to think there's no stupid questions. And I don't think Jesus is making fun, but sometimes he does say, wrong question. Here's a better one. So I'll finish it later, but that's the first thing I want to see in the story. The second thing is this, later on, in John chapter 9, verse 20, he gets healed. And there's this huge debate, and I'm not going to get into why this is happening or the theology of this, but basically what's happening in the story is um, the religious leaders want to discredit that a miracle's actually happened, that Jesus is a fraud. And so they find the blind man's parents, and the parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, for he will speak for himself. Now, that's painful for me to read. And I'm not going to preach this passage. That's not my goal, and I have in the past. And if you've heard it preached, you probably have heard someone play off it this way. It's very effective. But I'm sure... These parents wanted what every parent would want, their child to be born what? Healthy. And the fact the child was going to be born blind, especially in this society, okay, would have been hopeless. If you watch the show This Is Us recently, that's a new narrative that's been introduced into it, a child born blind. Why would the parents do this? And the text gives us the next part. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. It's a concept I'm going to talk about this morning. The first thing is a reductionist theology, and the second thing is shame. The reductionist theology always begins with the topic of mental illness with whose fault is it, where's the sin, which I don't think helps. The next thing that enters the dialogue is the shame. And shame is something that's communicable in the sense of this. It makes me feel like I no longer belong or what? Fit in. And when it comes to mental illness and when it comes to emotional pain and struggles in our life, I think this is what we struggle with the most. So if I could leave this morning with talking about both, it would help. So beginning with the reductionist theology, if you've grown up in church, you've heard the word sin a lot. Harmatea, 
It literally means to miss the mark. And I don't want to get off on some theological tangent here, but basically we were created to be in the image of God. We have not been saved just so we can live forever because we're scared of dying. We have been saved so we can be conformed back to the image of Christ. And it's sin that changes that, meaning we no longer make that mark. We miss it. But I have up here two phrases. One, active sins and the effects or the effects of sin. Now, what do I mean by that? Active sins would be things that go wrong in my life simply because I've made poor choices. I work at a church now. If I stole money from that church, that would have a negative consequence. If I um, do not try to emotionally connect with my wife now, that's going to have a negative consequence. If I lie, there's a negative consequence. Meaning volition is a big part of the Bible when we're talking about sins. So what they're asking when they ask, who sinned the, this man or his parents? It's kind of odd. He wasn't born yet, so that's weird to figure out what they meant. And did his parents do something to what? Cause this. That's what they're asking. But the reason I say it's a reductionist theology is there's also the effects of sin, meaning how the sin of this world has affected us. Sometimes clergy emphasize a cognitive behavior model theory to help with mental illness. I know that's real wordy, but basically it's simply this. You go to Romans chapter 12, say, renew your mind, you'll live better. You go to Ephesians chapter 4, and it says, hey, put off stealing, put on giving. Put on bad communication, put on good communication. And they just kind of reduce all of this down to when you're struggling with things in your life, like anxiety or you're struggling with depression or you're struggling with intrusive thoughts or any of those things, well, you just need to learn to think right and then learn to what? Change your what? Behavior. It's very reductionist in its view of sin. The point is this. The sin of this universe goes way beyond the personal choices that I'm making. One of the consequences of the fall is the corruption of our bodies, including our minds. I just want you to think about somebody that you know or love, if you've experienced this, that all of a sudden you wake up one day and you find out they have dementia, or more specifically, Alzheimer's. What sin did they commit to cause that? The reality is it's one of the saddest things in the world because if you just get on YouTube videos and watch it to get how it's diagnosed, it's like parts of their mind slowly begin to fall away. Why? Because eventually everything with this body and this mind is eventually in this life going to what? Fall away. Mental illness is a synergy of physical, mental, emotional, communicable, and physiological issues. And our heart is so much more than cognition. So when you think about people who struggle with intense depression and intense anxiety, and those are the ones that are most common, I want you to think about this illustration. So Brad's in the back there. He's this. If I look at Brad right now and I would say, okay, here's what I want you to do in a second. Wait for it. Wait for it. Be anxious. Go. I don't think he's going to be able to do that. 
In fact, if I said, hey, let's just all do an exercise right now. I want you all on the count of three to become very anxious. Now, I could probably do something with some of you, like say, hey, would you like to come up on the stage and do public speaking right now? Or, you know, hey, I'm going to pick someone out from the audience and walk up and down the aisle. Some of your heart would be, <laughs> it'd be like right then. But for the most part, you just don't snap a finger and become what? Anxious. So is it reasonable for me to say to you, hey, those who are anxious, hey, stop. I have a granddaughter. She's seven. She gets very excited. She can become very anxious. Her name's Audrey. I call her Punky Jane. How reasonable. Hey, Punky, hey, stop being anxious right now. Done? Good. What's going on? There's a lot of things going on when we deal with these issues. Now, notice I did not use the word spiritual. Now, do not throw me out. I believe in the word. I am a Christian. I just really never know what anyone means when they're using the word anymore. It's those words that nobody unpacks. How's your spiritual life? I don't know. It's pretty good. I went on a nature walk. I smoked some pot, and I did get Oprah this week to listen. My spiritual life's great. <laughs> Now, that seems silly, but I could ask you, how's your spiritual life? Well, I read my Bible this week. Well, wait a second. Your eyes are physical. Your mind is physical. Didn't you just do something physical? Well, it's spiritual. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't know. We just use that at church all the time. My spiritual life. You know, it really can be a little tricky word to define. You'll know that if anyone ever uses Don't do this. You'll end up being the friend nobody likes. <laughs> Just listen to how many times we use it in church and just ask somebody, what do you mean by that? Spiritually, I'm not doing well. What do you mean like that? Well, you know, I'm really down right now. Wait, wait, wait. You just talked about your emotions. Down, sadness. That's an emotion. The reason I go through that little exercise is to say it's, it's a little more complicated than that. Often there's what I call a false dichotomy injected into the narrative. So this is a, and I really like this guy. He uses books for one of our textbooks for students. And it's this quote. It says this. Caring for people means being alert to physical problems that require medical treatments and spiritual problems that require Christ and his word. You hear that a lot. People come into our counseling center. They've heard that before. It's kind of like, isn't that so neat and clean? Well, okay, these are the physical problems and these are the spiritual problems. And we like dissect people up like that. Like that's how anthropology works. You know, it's interesting. Spirit and soul will mean different things in different contexts in the Bible. It's just used. Actually, soul means the entirety of a person a lot of the time. Meaning we can't just cut ourselves up like that and say, well, this is a physical problem. Take medication for that. And this is a spiritual problem. And you need Jesus for that. That's not how we live our lives. And we kind of know that. Meaning this. If I did not get any rest day after day after day after day, and I was not eating day after day after day after day, would I be able to perform my functions as a counselor and a preacher? No. Eventually that would have an effect on me. But I would say something as simple as, well, is that affecting my spiritual life? Yes. But that's a physical thing. Yes. Meaning these concepts are more integrated than we think about. So what happens when we just try to make this reductionist whose sin, and is it spiritual or physical? I think it's a reductionist theology. A study by Baylor University revealed that among Christians who approached their local church for help, 
in response to a personal or family member's diagnosed mental illness, more than 30% were told by a minister that they or their loved one did not really have a mental illness, and 57% of the Christians who were told by a minister that they were not mentally ill quit taking their medication. Now, are people overdiagnosed? Yes. And I'm not meant to like win a debate today about all of that or talk about something controversial. It just means this. It's more complicated, and I think the Bible deals with it theologically in ways that we don't. So what is a better theology this morning I would like to leave you with? Number one, we are all responsible for our healing and growth, and we do have choices. Meaning, we're not just these total victims not equipped to deal with things like mental illness and sadness and anxiety and things like that. That's not true. In fact, for every area of our life, we're eventually responsible for it. But it also means this. Our minds have been affected by sins we did not commit. These are not exaggerations. A week does not go by at our counseling center where we are not calling in to the state reports of abuse. Like I said, now this isn't a get sad, look at the problem. This is why we love what we do. That's happening anyway. It gives us an opportunity to minister to people. Often we're talking to people who have had sins committed against them. Sometimes terrible, heinous things. But sometimes things that we kind of, to be honest, um, do not really realize they're as big a deal to us as we thought they were. That affects us. Also, the sin and how it affects all of God's creation and the sins of our society. Meaning, it is volition and we do have choices, but the reason people aren't poor isn't always because they won't work. There are things like systemic poverty and things in our culture and our society that affects people. So how do we overcome it? First is a better theology. We're not always looking who's to blame. And next is dealing with this, and it's simply shame, which is a really big deal in the Bible. Now, I love this verse because it says so much to me, and if you've grown up in church or you know your Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is the creation narrative. You have two stories told two different ways. One's very poetic. Uh, the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. Evening and morning is a very beautiful poem in there. And then it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then you go through and he makes man and woman. And they're created. And you have marriage. And you have the commission. And you have all of those things. So you have this beautiful narrative portrayed in two stories. And you get to the end of Genesis chapter 2. And God could have said anything he wanted. He said, and God was brought glory. And he could have said, and things were good and overwhelming. And, and the mission of God will happen. And he could have ended it any way. Way he wanted. He could have put the period at the end of the creation story, climbing the mountain, the beauty of God, everything any way he wanted, and he ended it with this one statement, and it's this. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no what? Now just let that set in for a second. Sink in. 
He could have finished the whole thing, and he says, okay, in chapter 3 now, something's going to be introduced to this story of humans that wasn't there before. And there's going to be a lot of introduced things. There's going to be death, and there's going to be sickness, the loss of his glory, spiritual warfare. And I'm not trying to say one's more important than the other. I'm just telling you when God wanted to express the thing that was going to change the most because sin was introduced into this world, he says this, before they didn't feel what? Shame, and now they do. So from a theological standpoint, it's a big deal. A leading researcher said this, what is shame? There's one of three ways it usually appears in our life. The first way is this, I'm bad. I should have more or I should be better at. So as soon as you start dealing with somebody, anxiety, depression, sadness, or some of the more severe ones, and they hear that and immediately their mind can go to shame, which is this, I should have more faith. I should obey more. I shouldn't be struggling with this. Somehow I'm a bad what? Person. The next one is this. I'm too much. I will exasperate people so I will hide. Yes, I deal with this. I struggle with this. But I cannot share this with people because I'll be too much for people. That's shame. And the final one is simply this. Who do I think I am? It's kind of this idea that everyone up here who's leading worship this morning, or I'm up here and I'm speaking, or these people at the church who are doing this, who am I to go do those things because I'm so jacked up? And I won't get into it. At the counseling center, we, we counsel a lot of pastors. What do pastors struggle with? The same things you do. Well, no, not technically. Yeah, let me let you in on a secret. The exact same things you struggle with. You guys are that jacked up? Yes. So why have hope with all that? I want to share a passage with you what God gives and what we give to it. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, for encouragement. Peter writing this, things are going bad. He says later in the letter, he knows I'm going to die. They're under persecution. You can make the argument that Nero's killing Christians. And Peter says this, as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness... Through the knowledge of him who has called us to glory and virtue, by which he has given us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He has given us all things. So I want to give you two things he's given you for hope this morning. One is wisdom, and the second is community. The first thing you say with mental illness, with the struggles of this life, what do I need to do? Understand this. God has given you something. It's called wisdom. How big deal is it to get it? Proverbs 23, 23, by the truth sell it not. Also wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Proverbs 16, 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold? Proverbs 4, 7, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. With all you're getting, get understanding. Solomon's saying this. He's telling it to... Rehoboam, he says, get wisdom. Well, how does Solomon know to do that? If you've not heard the story, it's very simple. His father David told Solomon one day, the most important thing you need to get in your life is wisdom. Solomon didn't get a lot of things in his life right. In fact, he became a huge idolater. But at this place in his life, he did get that. So the question I want you to ask this morning is, where will you find wisdom to deal with these things? 
First and foremost, it is scripture. God has given it to you, but you do have to go what? Get it. Scripture to study. Proverbs 12.15 says counsel. Proverbs 11.14, where there's a multitude of counselors, a variety of sources. Proverbs 13, wise son, he just father instruction, experienced people. Your parents are mentioned over and over again. And then finally this, observation of natural order. Solomon says, go to the ant, thy slugger, consider her ways. He also says, go to badgers, locusts, and lizards. <laughs> and also, experiential evidence. The entire book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is saying, these are the patterns of the world. This is what I observed. He, he writes the book like a scientist. And there is so much good work and good study that human beings have observed to help people. Best practices in theology, psychology, psychotherapy, medicine, all those things to help people. That's where wisdom can be found. Now, my goal of this is not to get everyone to go to counseling. It's really not, I promise. But here's my definition of counseling, what it is. Counseling is a relationship where one party is seeking wisdom from another. So if you struggle with these things, the question I will ask you is simply this. Where do you go to find wisdom? I'll give you something else wisdom teaches for all of you in here. And this gives you kind of a root of why we deal with these things. We all have what are called casual, critical, and crucial longings. This will probably be the hardest thing I'll say today. Casual longings are simply this, um, stuff we like. Critical longings would be something more serious in our life, relationships, marriage, and then we have crucial longings. So up here, my casual longings, where I go to the doctor, I want a good report, or I'm thirsty, I want something to drink. We all have those. I have critical longings in my life. I want to be married. I want to be happy in my marriage. And then we have crucial longings in our life that go with the essence of who we are, relationship with God in a relationship with each other on a very intimate level with as we're following Christ. Now here's the sad part of what wisdom teaches. Christ has not promised to meet either our casual or critical longings in this life. Ouch. I want to be married, no guarantee. Had a 19-month-old child in our church walk into a pond, got separated, died. Prayer line, we're a big church, 5,000. Prayer line, heal him, heal him, heal him, heal him. He was holding on, he had a heart, he died. And this is a downer Sunday, a little bit. We don't get that promise. We are thirsty people, but the good we experience in the struggle of this life has been a taste of what will be experienced later. Meaning, I don't get all my needs met in this life. And the anxiety and the sadness and the more serious things I feel, experience, it leads to that.
Larry Crabb says this, and this is what I think we do a lot in our lives. I know I do. We pretend that we ha what we have satisfies more than it does, and we pretend we haven't been as hurt as badly as we have. <clears throat> Why do I struggle with these things? This is what wisdom teaches us. This is what counselors do. Next, wisdom teaches we can hold a multitude of emotions at the same time. I want to stop being sad. I want to stop being anxious. I want to stop having intrusive thoughts. And it doesn't mean that there aren't things and techniques that can help with that. But the hope I would give you is this. It's not so much taking away the bad emotions as adding the good ones. As human beings, we can hold multiple emotions. We see it all the time. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying in anguish, sadness, and you look at another passage, and he says he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. You know you do it all the time in your life. At a funeral of somebody you loved, if they're a believer in the Lord, you have faith you will see them again. There is a resurrection in the future. They've gone on to a better place, and at the same time, you're sad because you miss them. A lot of times, we get in this reductionist theology, I can only experience one thing at a time, and it's just not true. You mean I could actually be struggling with depression and struggling with anxiety and in a sense still have peace and still have joy? Yes, look at the fruit of the Spirit if you grow up in church any time at all. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Jesus, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Look what's in the same passage. I can have long-suffering, suffering. At the same time, I have what? Joy. We can't have multiple emotions. So I finish with this, closing it up here. 2 Peter 1.5 says this, for this very reason, giving all diligence. So if God has given us wisdom, and God has given us what we'll see here in a second, community, and I'll talk about that, what do we give to the process? We say this all the time. I kind of made this up in our counseling center. There's no abracadabra Jesus. How do I get victory over these areas of my life or help people do it? You have to give diligence. It's spude is the Greek word, earnestness, zealousness, work. Christianity is the only thing I think I ever hear where it's talked about in such a way that we never have to work hard. It's like Jesus just comes in as abracadabra Jesus and fixes all the things in our life. If I were to say to you, if you're in your 40s and your 50s, hey, you're going to go back to school, do you think that would be easy or hard? If you see a young person they want to study to be an excellent athlete, is that going to be hard work or easy? Is anything in our life that's worthwhile going to be that easy? But then we approach a topic like this, it's like, I don't have to make any effort, I don't have to work hard. The reality is, it is hard work. Two, it's a process of growth. I won't go through the rest of the chapter, but he goes through this process by which you grow. It takes time. But you don't do it by yourself. We are also to give ourselves to what is talked about a lot now, community, a place of authenticity and vulnerability. I was counseling a woman. She was probably 77 years old, intense anxiety, intense depression. She was very sad. She couldn't get over it. It was debilitating to her. She couldn't sleep at night. She had trauma in her life, pain. When she was much younger, in her 40s, her daughter had gotten married, the dream of every mom, and probably within a month after the wedding, the daughter had been killed in a car wreck. Soon after that, she lost her husband. Traumatic events, possibly what caused her to suffer. 
And I kept talking with her and experiencing more with her and working things through with her. And she told me something one day that finally made it click in my mind. She had a best friend, a best friend who she talked to, a best friend at church. And the best friend talked to her. And after about a year, her friend said to her one time, probably meaning well, aren't you over this yet? She was done. No more vulnerability, no authenticity. I would just live this alone. And after time and after time after time, what should have been a normal grieving process, as much as normal can be, turned from sadness and fear something could happen to depression and an anxiety. Ephesians says, four, we be no more children tossed to and fro by every wa waves of carried by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. The reality is we are all born into a world that lies to us, and we are all born into a world with the propensity to believe lies. And here's what Paul says what community is supposed to be. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, rather speak the truth in love. I'm not going to get technical on what this means, but the reality is all they had when Ephesians was written was their Old Testament, and the New Testament's not complete, and it wouldn't have been printed. There's no printing press, and they all didn't have it. But they lived in a community where they would speak truth to each other. I know there's groups in this church. I know there's community. I know there's a ways to connect. My question to you is, are you getting wisdom? And more importantly, do you live, is church to you something you experience where you're completely authentic and vulnerable? Where you can really share what's going on in your life. I don't hide it anymore, I'm in my 50s. And this is not a criticism. My parents' generation would have been the silent generation, and the generation above them is passing away quickly, the greatest generation. I'm Gen X all the way. The people above me further down the road than me when they went to church, you didn't talk about your stuff. I was meeting with some men last night, and they said, how can you get away with having all these support groups now, like porn addiction groups and re recovery groups and all this stuff? Because, you know, there would have been a day with church, not dogging on church, where you wouldn't have had those groups, you wouldn't have talked about it. I said, you know, it's funny, I cannot improve this empirically, but here's what I think. The baby boomers wouldn't have talked about it themselves out of shame, but when their kids deal with it, the shame's gone, we just want someone to help our kids. I think that's it. That's what church is. There's no quick fix. I sometimes cringe when I hear the very miraculous stories given at church on a Sunday morning about, I just got healed like this right away. Quick. No, it takes time and a lot of work. And it doesn't mean it will live completely. My stories are more like this. A guy my age was struggling with something. He was having psychotic disorders. His life was falling apart. I began my treatment with him by going to see him in the psych hospital. And I met with him there. They gave him some medication to help with the psychosis. He finally got out. And I meet with him week after week after week after week. He's doing the work. It takes a lot of patience. I told you I'd give you a final thought, so we'll go back to the story of the blind man. And then at the end, Jesus says this, It was not this man that sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Most people read the story, you know the happy ending, he gets his sight back. 
But if you look at the context in the book of John, that phrase is used in another place. In John 9.3 it says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. But the same author, same context, same the book uses the same phrase, and he says this earlier, Whosoever does the truth comes to the light, so that his works might be revealed as the works wrought in God. I'll leave you with this thought on mental illness and dealing with it and struggling. It's this. The work God did in the life of the blind man wasn't primarily giving him his sight back. John 3.21 exists around John 3.16. It's somebody coming to Christ. So here's the reality of my life at 52 years old. It's a fight for perspective, for wisdom. And this is hope. Will my pain, which I consider my unwelcome friend, pain's your friend? It is. I don't like him. I wish he would go away. He's very demanding. I can't medicate him away. I can't compartmentalize him away. I can't use psychosis to get rid of him. I can't do anything to get rid of him. He's always with me in some way. The older you get, the more pain you experience. He's always there. Why is he in my life? He's very demanding. Don't you hate demanding friends? He's demanding. He demands two things. He demands that I feel my emotions, and he will not let go until I do. I could drink it away, medicate it away, but he's still there when it's done. And he demands me to feel my pain, share my pain with other people. What are we doing with people who struggle with these things in our own lives? We are fighting for wisdom when we are living in a community where we can be authentic and real with people about what we're feeling. Will my pain, my unwelcome friend, help me to see my life as the work of God, continually guiding me back to God's wisdom, community, and comfort? I believe church is the place where people should be able to say out loud, this is where I hurt, and this is really what I struggle with, and this is the real stuff that goes on in my head. And to be at a place where that vulnerability and that transparency is shared with a community of people who speak the truth to them in what? Love. Yes, we should read our Bibles. I'm a big Bible guy. When Paul wrote that, there's something special about hearing truth from other what? Human beings in love. Does that make sense? That's community.